90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I've got a stack of 100 and something midterms to grade, so, you know, I'm great. <laughs> it's already midterm time. It's unbelievable. Uh, it is. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. I try to do two exams in a final, so it's not quite midterm, but it's very close. It's midterm lab season, so there you go. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Here are six green minerals. Identify them. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> Or even worse, the dreaded clear mineral quiz. God, you just got to lick it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm partial to street color. (laughs) Street color, because everybody's carrying a streak plate around with them when they're out in the field. (laughs) It wouldn't surprise me. You geologists carry weird stuff around in the field. Yeah, that is true. I've definitely gotten a lot weirder. The more that I go out, just for yeah. my own entertainment purposes. Uh huh. So yeah. Well, my my favorite field geology trick from the little bit of field geology that I've done, I don't know if I've mentioned it on here before or not, is to put a safety pin on your lanyard mm-hmm. and use it to pierce your map where you take strike and dips, and then on the back of the map, by the pierce point, circle it and write the values. Yeah. And any other information. I get that, but my map gets too wet for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you must ensure dry days. But um, that's actually really good. I should start passing that one along and then see what happens. <laughs> well, you know, and as a geophysicist, if it's a wet day in the field, like, we're done because we're going to get electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> Car batteries love water. <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is very true. But yeah, no, that was uh, one of the the OGS mappers passed that along. I was like, yeah, this is an amazing little tip. That is a good little tip. That's very good. But uh, the other still... thing is carrying those like contractor clipboards where you can keep all your junk inside. Uh, see, and I could never get behind that thing. I know all those guys do that, and I can't do it. I just can't. So I have a really big field pouch that pulls my pants down. But <laughs> <laughs> at least all my stuff is like right where I can grab it. And then I want a little space for my map. So I actually experimented this summer with I have a big map board. It's like 11 by 17, like a plexiglass thing that's got like a cover, a plexiglass cover. Yeah. Um, so I have that. And that's what I usually map with. But then my um, other instructors started carrying around like a little bitty five by seven clipboard. And so I'm like, I'm going to try that and fold my map over. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really good because I already knew like the mapping area pretty well. In a new mapping area, I wouldn't want that little tiny five by seven thing. No. But man, it was great. Like when I'm already super familiar with the map, I'm like, oh, this is totally the way to fly. Hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. Oh. I mean, I liked the, the big chunky clipboard uh, because I didn't have a big field pouch. Yeah. In fact, uh, I don't know if you remember, but the field pouch that I had yeah. was like a, a SWAT team type thing. So it's strapped around your waist and it's strapped to one leg. And uh, multiple times I was mistaken for me having a sidearm on. Yeah, yeah that's what it looks like. <laughs> which caused some issues occasionally. Oh, yeah. And then I was like, no, no, it's just a field notes book and some really 
fancy pins. <laughs> really fancy pins. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I just go for the big pouch. I'm too, uh, it's my organizational style. It looks organized, but then it's just a big empty hole for all my crap to pile <laughs> in. So it's pretty wonderful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you know, actually, the last time that I was out near field camp and mapping, I was out in an area where there were some dried up and abandoned riverbeds. And then we were mapping them with GPR. That's right. Yeah. To try to get all the weird structures that can happen in the bottom of riverbeds, um, which you can sometimes see with GPR. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I think today it would be fun to talk about rivers. They're a pretty basic geologic feature, uh, but we haven't explicitly talked about how they work because it's not just water comes in at a high elevation and dumps out at a low elevation. I mean, it kind of is, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> Um, so this is interesting that you suggested rivers, because I didn't know if you knew this, but today is um, 50, or it's the actually the 51st year, um, of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act that was signed on October 2nd, because we're recording early, obviously, um, 1968 by President Lyndon Johnson. I did not know that. Yes, and then September 29th, so only a few days ago, was World River Day. All right. Well, we're right on time then. It is. This is great. I was like, I wonder if he's going to pull this on me in the middle of recording. Ha <laughs> 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 ha, sucker. I already know this. <laughs> but apparently you weren't. So there you go. <laughs> yes. No, I, I did not know. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's great. Rivers are one of my favorite things to talk about. I don't know why. I'm real obsessed with them. Um, I know we talked about dams. And what they do to rivers before, um, that's one of our pretty popular shows. If you haven't heard that one, you can go back in the archive. Um, and I'm very obsessed with the documentary Damnation. In fact, we're watching it in class right now. And <laughs> since I switched this semester to Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, so these 50-minute classes instead of 75-minute classes, which has really thrown me off my game. <laughs> but <laughs> you can't watch the documentary in one sitting. And so we watched half of it today, and I had this girl come up to me after class, and she was just like, I didn't want to watch this. I didn't know anything about dams. I thought this was dumb, and I already love it, and I totally almost want to be a geologist now <laughs> <laughs> after 20 minutes of a documentary. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm pretty passionate about this river thing, and um, I'm sure a lot of other people are out there too. And I don't – rivers are just like – it's like fires – you know, people, you build a fire and you just want to stare into it. I feel the same way about rivers. Right. And it's easy to forget, okay, you visit a river and there's water flowing. It's easy to forget that that's always, at least for non-seasonal rivers. Correct. And that little action of moving particles and sediment that we'll get to, over time causes massive erosion. I mean, look at the Grand Canyon. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the Grand Canyon is a little bit of a different thing than just a regular river, but we can talk about that too, because it's actually the 100th anniversary of the Grand Canyon National Park and the 150th anniversary of John Wesley Powell's um, trip down the Colorado River to look at everything out west. So, yeah, if we needed more justification for talking about rivers, I just, there it is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I mean, there's some really cool, just if you think about rivers, you know, there's a whole gamut of types and we kind of break them down into two types. Um, and when I say this, I say streams a lot just because that's how we talk about them too. But when I say streams, it also goes for rivers or like I said in class today, it also covers cricks if you're going to talk about <laughs> <laughs> those types of body of water or creeks um, for those of you that are north of missouri yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. crick is the correct pronunciation um and so the two main ones are in members and we do this a lot in science right we talk about the extremes but in reality most things live in between those two extremes and so those are meandering rivers and braided rivers you know and uh... I don't know if they're totally the extremes because to me, the extreme from a braided river is a straight river. I mean, you'd still call the meandering river, a straight river though. Mm. Eventually it's going to meander. That's eventually it's going to meander. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a finer distinction between braided streams and anastomosing streams. Okay. Yes. Yes, there is. So I talk about two end members, but you're right. It's probably more like a triangle. <laughs> it's a ternary diagram of streams. It is a ternary diagram of streams. You're exactly right. And you just wanted to say anastomosing. <laughs> They're really pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, I didn't really get the difference, actually, between anastomosing and braided rivers for quite some time but yeah, yeah i mean so a braided river is more a lot of little channels that are crisscrossing mm -hmm. that they're braided they're semi-chaotic uh whereas anastomosing is like a, a whole belt of channels so you've got many channels and those channels have channels and those channels have channels and it's almost fractal like it's like a, a vein pattern in a leaf Now I've got to look up pictures of this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, but we can get to those words because <laughs> right. anastomosing is a weird word. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it's use. a very geomorphologic kind of term, I think. Like, yes. I don't think you would ever hear a geologist say this is an anastomosing river. No, you wouldn't. Um, you do see that a lot in the literature. When you're trying, when you're looking at ancient river deposits and you're sort of trying to classify them because there is that subtle difference between braided rivers and anastomosing rivers. And that's important because you want to know where the sand is when you're drilling for oil or gas or water. Right. So, so that's where I feel like I see anastomosing a lot more. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, but I think we should start at at the top so the the river originates somewhere and that's called the headwater mm -hmm. yep and so when we're talking about that that's usually i talk about the gradient a lot and so you know high gradient is exactly what it sounds like so you have elevation that changes a lot over a short distance and so a lot of headwaters are up in mountainous areas or higher gradient areas. Right. And when you have a steep gradient, you don't tend to get things like braiding. You get a, a channel 
and not much branching off of it, and it is much deeper than it is wide, generally, uh, because you've got a lot of high-energy flow that's doing this eroding. And you would, if you were classifying a river's age and you saw something like that, you would say it was a pretty young river. It hasn't had a chance to to even out that gradient by moving material from those high energy areas to lower energy areas. Um, yeah, that's right. And the steep gradients are just like you said, well, high energy too, which is also true for braided streams. And those can form on fairly steep slopes as well. I guess it just, this is where having end members is hard to pinpoint something, right? Right. Yeah. So I guess I would say maybe, would you say in most geology textbooks, they say that mountain streams are braided or meandering? Uh, I think it really, I mean, it really depends on, it depends on how you're coming at it. I teach that high slopes lead to braided streams just because that's high energy. That's it. But if you think about it, and I, and I've always, I never got that until I went back and read my geology notes and it said that. And I was like, that's not intuitive to me. What you said was intuitive, that you've got this single channel. There's not a lot coming into it yet. Because that's the very, I think this is where you're at the very, very headwaters, right? Because if you look right. at the headwaters of the Arkansas River, which is in Canyon, well, it's not in Canyon City, but it's very close by. You know, it is. It's just a single channel even though it's a pretty high gradient. But when the Arkansas River gets to Tulsa, it's not a meandering river anymore. It's a braided stream. So it's hard to think about that because when we talk about energies, braided streams are super high energy, which means steep gradient. So I think it's just things that you have to keep sort of separate from themselves. But when you're talking about the headwater of a system, it is the single channel. You can also, the headwaters of Colorado, um, are in northern Colorado. And yeah, it's this tiny little ditch. You can jump over it. <laughs> like cows can walk over it. And it's so crazy to me because it's like, that's, well, number one, I do a lot of my research on the Colorado River. And like that car of the Grand Canyon, that thing in that field that cow just jumped over. <laughs> right. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's mind blowing to me. And as we're talking, you can tell too, you know, rivers change depending on where you're at. And so we started at the very beginning, the headwaters, but stuff starts to happen after that. Yeah, so you, you pick up a lot of sediments and things in this high-energy environment, and you start sending them downstream, and eventually you're going to run into less deep gradients or create them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you're going to have to get rid of all that stuff you've been carrying along. Yeah, so things start depositing, and we get things like deposits in stream beds or bank deposits during floods. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I spend, you know, a half lecture talking about this because this is kind of a cool, is all the different bars that you can get. So just like you said, in like a meandering stream system, the single channel you'll get buildups and you can see this really well from the air. So the next time you're in an airplane, after you listen to this, you're like, oh, there it is. Um, I just took several pictures on the way to Phoenix actually to show in class. And so if you were to draw, say an S on a piece of paper, okay? 
And now, are we talking just a normal S or one of those nope. S's made out of lines that we all <laughs> learned how to draw in elementary? Hey, those are super cool. I drew those as the first letter of my name, obviously, for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> for a long time until I turned it into a saxophone for a little while. <laughs> but I, I digress. <laughs> so an actual curvy S. <laughs> um. And you can say, all right, so if I start at the top of this S, and that's where my water is flowing, so towards me as I'm looking on a paper. As you get to the outside of that first bend, okay, that is what we would call the cut bank. So that's where all the erosion is happening. So you're picking up, as you go around that bend, you're picking up all these sediments. And then you go into kind of the straighter part of the S, and when you're in the middle of that line, that's where your deepest flow is. And then you get down here to the second curve. And again, that outside curvy part is the cut bank. That's where the erosion is happening. But you have to stick that sediment somewhere. And opposite of those cut banks are what we call point bars. And that's the cool deposits that you see that are sort of right up against the edge of the river. And they get deposited there because that's where the flow is not as fast. So it can't hold that stuff and it kind of pukes it out right there. Right. And from a physics standpoint, I don't like this. <laughs> uh, my water is trying to go from a high place to a low place and it has to go around an S and lose energy picking mm -hmm. sediment up and mm -hmm. dropping it off places. And yeah. nature doesn't like that either. <laughs> no, it sure doesn't. But you know what always surprises me is how much nature will allow that to go on before it does something about it. You know what I mean? Like there are some really curvy curves in rivers. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is crazy. So, exactly. So, it just keeps going. So, you just keep accentuating the S shape, right? Until you're moving around. A lot of curviness, right? The really famous horseshoe point, you know, picture on the Colorado River. Big old curve. And that river's got nowhere else to go. It's stuck there. But if you're out in the middle of Nebraska, you know, your river isn't stuck there. And it can do something about it eventually. Because nature's lazy. The universe is lazy. It wants to take the, la the path of least resistance. And eventually, the river will say, nope, I'm done with this. <laughs> And it'll just do this thing that we call a shoot bar, and it'll just go straight through that S and cut off those curves entirely and make an entirely new channel. And those curves become one of my favorite things. <laughs> Oxbow Lakes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. They're real cool looking. And so yeah. once they dry up, they're known as meander scars. Um, but those oxbow lakes can hang around for a long time. And you can look up these. There are images for all this stuff on um, online. One of, my, one of my favorite assignments is to make the students do this. And I make them rip images off just because I like to see where you can find the best pictures of all these things. And I just, I can't believe some of the extreme geometries of these rivers before they decide to form a shoot bar and move on right or before they decide to evolve 
which is also another cool term that we have when we talk about rivers changing direction. Right. And so you might say that that's not strictly a river term. Correct. And, and it's not. So an avulsion medically is the catastrophic removal of something like an arm. No kidding. It's ripped or torn off. Oh. Uh, isn't, that's a pleasant way to say it, isn't it? Right. <laughs> My and, arm just evolved. <laughs> and so this is this is that for a river. This is the river channel. This river's home is torn off the stream system. Mm-hmm. We go to a completely different, a new river channel. Mm-hmm. And this generally happens in low energy environments. Right. So maybe I jumped the gun <laughs> here by mentioning avulsion. So it cutting through that S-curve is an avulsion. Um, that's where, say, and the most famous example would be to think about the Mississippi River, right? It's on the, it's building out into the ocean, right at the, if you've got the headwaters, and then this is the mouth of the river. That's what right. you call the end part. Um, and it's building out. It's fairly shallow gradient, right? You're getting down to sea level there. And it just builds up. Its sediment goes out into the ocean, but it also is sitting there building up on this fairly low gradient. And eventually it's built up so much that river's not going to flow uphill. And so it just says, see you later. And it flows a different direction entirely. And this can be like a light switch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And has almost been like a light switch several times since humans have been inhabiting that. And the problem with the Mississippi, obviously, is that we're keeping it where it is due to a whole system of locks and dams and levees and everything. But nature always wins, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there's actually a great John McPhee book about this. We've talked about John McPhee several times on here called Control of Nature that discusses um, the Mississippi River and what's going on in Louisiana. And it's a big problem because if we were to allow the Mississippi River to evolve, to go where it wants to go, because that Birdfoot Delta, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look up Birdfoot Delta and look at this picture of Louisiana. And you'll see this little thing that looks like a birdfoot that's sticking way out and that's where the mouth of the Mississippi is. And it's there because we've put it there. It doesn't want to be there. That land has built out so far and now is at this gradient that the river doesn't want to be at. It wants to go a shorter, steeper pathway to the ocean, right? So it wants to move. And the problem is it wants to move basically through New Orleans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know... We don't want that to happen, but also, given a big enough scenario, it's going to move through New Orleans. Yes, and there's not going to be much we can do to change that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So this is one of those things where knowing geology and informing, you know, people in power could actually do some help to save lives. Maybe this is something we need to be looking at proactively. But I, I don't, there's a lot that you can say about this. We always have some very heated and great discussions in class when we talk about this sort of thing. Because now it's the 
the nature way to let everything go back naturally, to let it flow down the Atchafalaya, which is the river it wants to flow down. Um, or, you know, losing all of New Orleans. So one of our biggest, earliest cities. What do we do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so another name that you might hear thrown about is a delta, which ties in with what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just that at the mouth of the of the river where it meets the ocean, it's where it pukes out all its sediment, right? Because as John was just talking about earlier, physics, when we're talking about rivers, we talk, there's a lot of things we take into account. Width of the river, depth of the river, and this all goes in with velocity. And then like how much sediment load the river can carry, where the river's carrying it. So is it a bed load? Is it a suspended load? Stuff like that. Um, and one of those things, when you get to the end, the rivers are always looking for a thing called base level, right? So right. sea level is base level. We create artificial base levels when we do stuff like create dams. So everything wants to flow to that lowest energy state. This river wants to flow to the ocean. That's its base level. And when it gets there, your velocity goes down, right? Because you've got this flowing thing and it hits this big ocean of water literally um and it dumps its sediment and that's the delta yeah so you're going from slow moving to not basically right yeah exactly mm-hmm. and so you you have to get rid of that because uh, your energy went down so much and it also creates a really weird area for uh life and just the whole interaction of fresh water and salt water this kind of brackish water which just means it's not fresh it's not salt yes yeah mm-hmm. um you'll hear words like estuaries which is a little bit of a different thing um that's where the salt water can make it back up in there but the shape just like you said john the shape of that delta it really defines the environment because there are lots of different things that happens to that sediment when it dumps out right there at the river, right? And the dominant forces that are working on it are what determines like what can live there and where the sediment goes. You can have tide dominated deltas, you know, you can have wave dominated deltas and all these make different shapes. And that bird foot delta off of Louisiana that the Mississippi is making, you know, it's just, we've, sunk that channel into one location that's the bird leg part and then we've let it kind of flop around there where it meets the ocean and that's the foot part of that delta so you have to remember that's you know pretty much man controlled yeah so yeah and like i said deltas are real weird they're real stinky i don't know if you remember this trip down there it's real stinky oh of course (laughs) yes who who can forget Waiting around in a bunch of mud and trying not to get 16 passenger vans stuck. <laughs> uh, did you know that since all the uh, all the hurricanes, there's not enough sand on that beach to go out um, to the Brazos River Delta anymore? Wow. Mm-hmm. So in our sedimentology class, we take a trip down to Galveston and we look at the Brazos River Delta. And... It's not much to look at, really. It's just <laughs> this river that dumps into the ocean, and the sand is taken away so fast. There's not really a pile of sand there. Um, and you used to be able to drive along the beach, but all the hurricanes that have come through has reworked everything so much that there's not even enough room to drive along the beach, so you can't even get back to the delta anymore. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very disappointing. Yeah. 
Mostly because hmm. it was fun to watch people get their vans stuck on the beach. But <laughs> The secret is don't slow down. Don't slow down. That's what I yell constantly. <laughs> I refuse to. I would, I'd refuse. I was like, I'm the back van. I can't deal with you people. Like, none of you know how to drive. I can't deal with this. <laughs> so, yeah. That so another every driving course is all I'm saying. <laughs> Great. Uh, another river topic that I thought was worth mentioning, though I don't hear it a lot, is uh, the Strahler stream order. Yeah, I don't hear that a lot either. I'm going to have to let you do that one. <laughs> yeah, so it's applied to rivers, but it's something that you find everywhere. Uh, the idea is if a river has no children or no tributaries then its strawler number is one mm -hmm. then you go to a strawler number of two and then three and so on so the larger the strawler number the more of a main river it is like right. let's say the mississippi has a strawler number of four mm -hmm. okay so 80 percent of rivers are strawler numbers one or two Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of this, again, almost golden ratio kind of growth. Yeah. Uh, or Fibonacci sequence, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, and it shows up everywhere. Uh, and I know people always give all these wonderful natural examples of places where stuff like this happens. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's also very very prevalent in a uh, compilation of computer languages and how they do register allocation i could see that yeah it's also how you analyze social networks uh, yeah exactly yeah mm -hmm. yeah hmm. i guess i don't see that this is probably more used in hydrology really oh definitely yes yeah and so i'm definitely not a hydrologist <laughs> Because you sort of get an idea if you know what the Strahler number of a stream is, uh, you've got an idea of how how important is this for the overall water movement through this watershed. Right. So it's position in the drainage, basically. Right. So you know, ones are. I'm not going to say up high, but kind of. You know, the little ones up high. Twos are where they start to come together. Threes are pretty larger channels. Four is the main thing that's going to make it to the base level. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I Do they do this for veins, too? Because this all just looks like maps of veins. It seems like you could I do don't the know. same thing for... I wonder if it's called the same thing. Hmm. Maybe maybe they do do something similar for the, for the human body. Doctors. Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Real doctors. <laughs> Real doctors. <laughs> Can weigh in on that. I'm not that kind of doctor. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, okay, well, I see stuff that say orders of veins and arteries, so. Yeah, there you go. They're just not named after somebody. <laughs> uh, another fun river thing is not all rivers are on the surface. What? <laughs> so are you talking about groundwater? <laughs> well, so, I mean, there are rivers that flow through karst, limestone yes. caves. Mm -hmm. Yep, uh, exactly. There are also rivers under glaciers. This freaks me out so much and also produces one of the weirdest 
landforms ever, but we'll get there, I'm guessing. Well, maybe, maybe not. But also, sometimes you can have the rivers making these, we call them Riedel channels, mm-hmm. yeah. in the ice. So mm-hmm. instead of having a stream bed, in, it's like you flip everything upside down. It's cutting into the ice instead of cutting into the ground. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so in a river that's cutting into the ground, where are you going to find your sediment? You're going to find it once that river's gone, it's in that channel, right? And so it's the opposite in these rivers that run under glaciers is that the sediment winds up making a mound in that ice cave, that Riddell Channel thing. And so you basically get an inverse river called an esker, which is super weird. You know, I'm really disappointed in whoever was doing the uh, the naming here. <laughs> because be- what did you want it to be? <laughs> river backwards is rever. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a backwards river. It should be called a rever. <laughs> did you say the rever? Yeah, the rever over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll be fine. Uh, but the other cool thing about these is because glaciers are exerting some pressure, there is subglacial pressure from the weight of the ice overhead, and the river may or may not be able to balance that pressure, you can actually get flows upgrade. It's just squirting it backwards. Yeah. That's a rever. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. You heard it here first. Rivers flowing upgrade are called revers. (laughs) We got to get that patented or something real quick. Yeah. Um, I can't, I I could talk all day about the river glacier interaction. It's the weirdest thing to me. Yeah. So when it goes away, it dumps all its stuff and it's a mound that's left behind. It looks like a snake. It's an inverse river. Essentially, these things are great for uh, storing groundwater because there are all kinds of porosity in there. And actually, you can buy online esker water. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so when I taught my extreme geology of extreme climates class, we did a whole thing on glacial environments. And one of the, yeah, we were going to buy esker water. I actually think one of my students ordered it, and it just, it never showed up. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, it's it's on its way with a large inheritance mm-hmm, exactly. that you that you got over over an email. It's right here. Esco water filtered by nature for more than fifteen years. Oh wow. Uh-huh. It's from Eskers in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. Uh and so you can also get like a sheet flow if you've got enough pressure to do something that is amazing which is lift the entire glacier off the bed. Woohoo. Uh, <laughs> and that can definitely happen and does yeah, in places that's... like ice streams where you might have 90 to 95% of the weight of the ice supported by pressure in these channels. That's crazy and seems unstable. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why some of these ice streams are flowing at 300 meters a year. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's weird. Super weird. Which ice stream, that's a whole different form of... That is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even talk about that one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's sort of the fundamentals of rivers that I think of anyway. 
Can you mm-hmm. think of anything that we missed? I mean, you know, we didn't talk about any of the different bar types because there's a lot of bars when you talked about braided stream systems, but that's probably its whole own show right there. Braided streams are the coolest, I think. They're so much more fun to watch than just a single channel, boring old fine grain meandering stream. So, oh. Know. One other thing, you said braided streams and the sing- so I like the single channels because they're simpler to understand fluid dynamically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I went out on a field trip with the USGS years ago now. Um, let's see, thirteen years ago now, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we saw how they measured the discharge of a stream. Okay. Yeah. And so they had this little thing that looked kind of like a torpedo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had an anemometer on top of it. <laughs> Great. And they would lower it off the side of a bridge from the side of a truck into the river. And so the anemometer spins, and they would get a velocity measurement of the water past that point. Mm-hmm. But you can't totally just use that because not all of the water is moving at that speed. Right. So you get to use this fun thing uh, called the law of the wall. (laughs) I love it already. (laughs) First of all, anything that has the name law in it better start with F equals MA, and this doesn't. (laughs) So I'm not real happy about that. Uh But so this was originated by Von Karman. Okay. So famous, famous scientist. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very, very simple. It just says the speed of the flow is proportional to the log of your distance from the wall or from the boundary. Okay. Yeah. So at the edge of the river, assuming that water is not flowing right straight into the ground, the velocity is zero. Mm-hmm. Just like the wind is zero velocity zero to the surface of the, the earth. ground. Yep. Mm-hmm. So instead of the velocity rising in a linear fashion, it rises in a logarithmic fashion as you get further away from that. Okay. Yep. Just now, like the wind. This law does have some mathematical basis, and the mathematical basis says that it breaks down when you're more than like 20% of the width of the channel away from the wall. Okay. In reality, we just use it anyway. Wow. uh, Because we found out it's not that bad. No kidding. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. So So if you measure the the speed of something that's flowing in a confined space, which if it's flowing... probably is in a confined space if you're on earth yes uh you can use this law of the wall and approximate the velocity profile really simply like with your ti-89 graphing calculator well there you go and then you can throw out after you've done that you can say hey this part of the river that's going the fastest also correlates to the deepest part of the river which is called the thalweg (laughs) i forgot about that one (laughs) (laughs) that's always an extra credit question so if anyone in my class is listening i always ask what the deepest part of the river is called because yeah it's super weird (laughs) yeah and they also had a little it was kind of like a gpr but i believe it was sonar based Oh, okay Mm -hmm. uh, that they would drag across the river on a little pontoon and it profiled the bottom that's cool but it didn't work super well at least not 13 years ago uh, because there was so much bed load uh-huh. that moving around down there. 
Yeah, so it was getting a false bottom from all the sediment that was getting dragged along the bottom of the river, and especially yeah. during flood conditions. Yeah, that does not surprise me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we can. Well, we can talk about braided streams and bedload. I've got some pretty awesome videos that I've taken just from sitting out in the field when it starts to rain. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try to find those, and we can discuss. <laughs> all right. Perfect. <laughs> Great. Well, with that, I think it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. And this paper you found, I would say, is woefully relevant to us. I agree. I can't even say it without laughing. (laughs) Um, To be funny or not to be funny, gender differences in student perceptions of instructor humor in college science courses by Cooper et al and i mean et al (laughs) so this was a class project so everybody in the class is an author yeah which is great (laughs) um i thought this was great because being hilarious obviously (laughs) right um i get different reactions to that and i always think that there's actually a pretty fine line between being funny and then going too far um and what does it do? And my thought was it always sort of, it gets rid of that sage on the stage business, which right. people can say is the best way to teach, but it's probably not for actual learning. Um, I feel that humor does that, and I'm backed up by research now. Yeah. <laughs> so but they, they wanted to find out some things about humor, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Um. They did a lot more stuff than just that, than just figuring it out. Actually, I thought this was really interesting. And they were very careful in how they made all their questions. But basically, they wanted to see, you know, what does having a funny science professor specifically do for you? What does it do for you? Does it do anything for you? Does it make you pay attention more? Does it make you pay attention less? Does it make them more relatable or not? Them being your professor... Um, and then also what kind of humor is it actually funny humor, which is hard to assess or is it offensive? And therefore, if it's offensive, what does it do for you? Does it make you pay attention more or less? Does it make you trust the professor more or less? And so there were some interesting findings on this. Well, and maybe the most important category for many college lectures is what about unfunny humor? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty good. Um, I say about 50% of my humor falls unfunnily, but yeah, (laughs) I'm also that person that says, Hey guys, that was funny. And then I get some pity laughs. So there you go. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, this is really neat. I thought, and obviously they qualify all over the place that humor is subjective. So there you go. And the, I would say most significant finding is the gender of the student makes practically no difference into whether they enjoy humor in a class and whether it helps them pay more attention. The answer is overwhelmingly yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought that was very nice. Um, and then unfunny humor does not affect both males and females equally. 
<laughs> right. Four, I think it was like 4% of the people said it actually made them pay attention a little more for the groaners. So Yeah, yeah. See, there you go. That is true. It is. There it is. <laughs> uh, but offensive humor, there were some differences. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the majority said offensive humor didn't affect whether they paid attention to the course content, but um, also offensive humor made students pay attention a little less and a lot less. Right. So there you go. And a lot of that offensive humor was directed at women, minorities, and religions. Exactly. And so I will say in the study methods, this was not actual things that were said by professors. Uh, They asked students to recall the last joke they heard, no matter what it was. And then they categorized it based on that. Uh, I enjoy very much not making a political statement at all that Sean Spicer (laughs) was in this table as a class of joke. Uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny, too. <laughs> I've already forgotten who Sean Spicer was. It seems so fleeting. <laughs> yeah, so that that dates the, the paper a little bit. Study, it sure does. Um, I thought the relatability of the instructor, because this is sort of what I always felt. Um, it was very strongly, like, if for funny humor, it made people relate a lot more to the instructor and equally as strongly offensive humor made the instructor a lot less relatable. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was one of the more interesting finds. Uh, I also enjoyed, so that they were asking more about different types of humor of the not offensive sort. Mm -hmm. The joke (laughs) that had the highest amount of people finding it funny is the science joke. Oh, man. It was like 80-something percent, wasn't it? 89 percent. Real high. And I think that goes into the whole, that goes into, so they did attention to course, relatability, and then they did this thing belonging to the science class. And I thought what was cool about the study is they did this in science courses because science courses, and they said it over and over again, so it clearly came from a lot of students, were heavy or dark. I thought the dark thing was weird. Um <laughs> And also that, you know, people coming into this just don't know their place in science, and it's often hard and competitive, which is what I did not like about meteorology. Um, And so they also did a thing belonging to the science class, and it said that funny humor made people feel a lot more that they belonged in science. Right. right. And the opposite for the offensive humor. And so I think that cracks me up that the 90% of, like, saying stuff was funny is science related. I feel like those are a positive feedback loop. Like I belong here. This is even funnier now. (laughs) It was shortly followed by college humor and television humor. Yeah. I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall short on that TV humor because I don't watch any TV. So, I mean, I make TV jokes, but they were about shows that were on 20 years ago. (laughs) I almost made a car 54 joke just then, but that's not 20 years ago. That TV show was on like 70 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So never mind. Oh my God. It really was 70 years. Ago. Oh <laughs> <Yes>. my gosh. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I watched a lot of Nick at Night when I was little. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, TV Land. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All, all the classics there. Oh, I, wow, I've actually got an, an intern, high school intern, that's helping me 
at my shop now mm-hmm. and uh, we were looking at the CNC lathe today and he had never seen DOS or oh, you know, some things like that. And uh, my wife pointed out that that lathe was made before he was born. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Whereas I clearly remember when it was made. <laughs> uh, yes, <So. laughs> exactly. Um, my mom has a <laughs> my mom has a cockatiel, those real obnoxious little gray birds with the little orange cheeks. That is twenty three years old, and he is older than all the students I teach almost. <laughs> No, okay, so in this table, interestingly enough, and I would not have necessarily picked this out, they don't have an age joke category listed. No. Mm-hmm. The closest thing is old people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which 27% found humorous and funny, uh, 29% found offensive. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny because definitely 29% of that class was not in the old people category when they looked at the demographics, which was funny. Um, also, I just assumed you would point this out. Cat jokes ranked 2% lower than dog jokes on the funny scale. They did. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. And uh, food, food puns. What does that mean? And it said like women were way more thought food puns were way funnier than guys. Like, I don't understand what food puns mean. I, I couldn't figure that one out either. Uh huh. Yeah, that's um, weird. But I will also point out that uh, fart jokes <laughs> only thirty three percent funny, eleven percent offensive. Yeah. Uh, farts or poop is the category. Just get it right. <laughs> and they even say in this paper that instructors could use this table as a guideline for planning their little humorous quips. Oh during my their lectures. gosh. <laughs> Oh, that is hilarious. So if you wanted to draw, yeah, draw the line. The line is drawn. Students are funny. Politics aren't. Yep. That's that's where the line is. Although 16% do find student jokes offensive, and I try to definitely stay away from student jokes, but I do always like to make the joke about using undergrads as labor for some of these studies that involve, you know, like counting ice cores and stuff like that. Yeah. I can't help myself on that one. <laughs> and then there are sports jokes, which I don't get, so I can't make them. That's close to the line. Yeah. 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 So right below cats is sports. <laughs> yep. So science, colors, television, and food. <laughs> Funs. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So those are all safe. Everyone thinks those are funny. Your students will pay more attention in class. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you have some food puns that we should know about <laughs> to be using on this show, uh, or you'd like to tell us your favorite science joke, uh, we're always up for hearing those. So, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Please send us those. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can also tweet your science jokes to us. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And you can come into the Slack channel. And maybe we'll just have a whole day where we just tell science jokes. That'd be great. Um, We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us laughing and hopefully you guys too you can support us on patreon patreon.com slash don't panic geo and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science revers
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.